Okay. All right, if you are uh, watching this online or, uh, or in Hastings, kia ora to you guys. Unfortunately, we weren't able to record that because the sound that comes through doesn't come through brilliantly from the full band. Um, so what you just missed is one of the best versions of With or Without You I've ever heard. Is that right? Is that fair? You know? Brilliant, brilliant job, guys. I was trying to get Robin to wear the, you know, the coloured glasses that Bono wears, um, but we didn't quite get to that. But uh, anyway, brilliant job, guys. Outstanding. That's one of my favourite uh, U2 songs. And it's been interesting as we were talking about maybe having that in the service today. I uh, started looking at, at the meaning of the lyrics and, and what they'd intended by that. And it's quite funny reading different people's views of what a song might mean. Because there's people who speculate that it's Bono singing about his wife, but then there's this other woman on the side that he also likes, and it's kind of this tension, and that's not what it is at all, so please don't believe that about Bono. Um, others think it's about his relationship with Jesus and trying to walk with Jesus, but also be in the world, and it's actually got nothing to do with his relationship with Jesus either. Um, what Bono says about the song is it was actually a song that was written um, exploring the tension that he feels between his private life and his public life. The sense of, of wanting to make, really make his marriage work and devote himself to his wife, um, but at the same time the sense of needing to be on the road and, and to tour and to be the musician that he is, and <clears throat> trying to reconcile those two parts of his life and, and the need that he feels to have both parts of his life and that neither of them in and of themselves really fulfill him completely and so on. It's this, this struggle that he has to feel, um, feel a sense of completion out of any part of his life at all. And it's a really interesting concept that as a married guy, Bono is saying in that song, almost both to his wife and to his fans, I can't live with you totally, but I can't live without you either. There's the sense that nothing completely fulfills him. It's bits and pieces of everything in his life. <laughs> He'll start preaching in the dark. <laughs> awesome. And um, it's, it's just a cool lead-in and a cool concept to think about as we continue this series uh, that we started last week called One Plus One. We're looking at relationships and what the Bible teaches about relationships, especially for singles, but also for those who are married. And last week, we kicked the series off by talking about finding the one. And then this week, I want to talk about finding the one. So it sounds like we're just going to do a repeat of last week. Um, and it's not, because there's one subtle difference that the very clever ones among you will already have picked up. Because it's a capital letter, eh? Some of you just worked it out already. So we're using lowercase lettering for all of the titles through this whole series, apart from today's. Because last week we were looking at finding the one, today we're talking about finding the capital O, one. And in a sense, we're building on what I talked about last week. Because last week, if you weren't here, I went after the romantic narrative, the idea that that drives our whole, really, our whole Western world, this romantic myth that there's, there's your other half out there somewhere, that, that somewhere out in the world is the one, your soulmate, 
who, who if you can just mystically find them, they will complete you and, and make life brilliant. And as I explained last week, that actually comes from Greek mythology, that once human beings were, were round beings with four arms and four legs, and that Zeus, the king of the gods, split us all in half. And so somewhere out there is your other half who will complete you. And, and <clears throat> last week I tried to demolish that myth as lovingly as I could for us. Um, and say, there's not another half out there of you. There's you. And you're a complete person. Um, As a man or a woman, young or old, you don't need another human being to complete you. Um, We are free to choose wisely whom we marry. Um, Paul says, apart from the fact they need to be in the Lord, they need to be a fellow believer. But we're free to marry whomever we wish. There is not the one hanging out there somewhere for you. Someone becomes the one when we vow our lives to them, but someone else isn't the one who will complete us. What I want to argue today is that more important than finding the one is finding the one. Because in a very real sense, we actually do need to be completed because we are broken by our sin and our rebellion against God. And we do need to be completed, we do need to be restored, we do need to be healed and forgiven, but that is done by God. It's not that we need to find another human being who will complete us. What we need to do is find who we really are in God. And it's God and his love for us and the forgiveness and grace he pours into us through Jesus. That's actually what completes broken human beings. And that's incredibly important for our human relationships. So this is my big idea today that I want to put out there right up front and then kind of unpack it a little bit for us. God is the one we're looking for. He is the one who completes us. Excuse me. God is the one we are looking for. He is the one who completes us. Our problem is that rather than looking to God for that sense of healing and completeness, rather than looking to God to be the one who fills us and secures us with his love, we have this tendency, because we're sinful, broken people, our tendency is always away from him, to turn away from God. That's the, that's the nature we've inherited from Adam and Eve. And even when we've come to Jesus and we've become believers in him and followers of him, we still have this natural tendency to continually turn ourselves away from the one, capital O, who can meet all our needs and make us secure and find our acceptance and love in him. And that has tremendous Um, issues then for the human relationships that we develop over time. One author that I've been reading, a a young guy called Marshall uh, Siegel, writes these words, Our plans and dreams can become idols. Marriage is a good gift, but a terrible God. I love that line. Marriage is a good gift, but a terrible God. He says, most of my grief in my teenage years and into my 20s came from giving more of my heart to my future marriage than to God. In other words, he says, as I look back now on my, tw- on my teenage years and my 20s, he's about 30 now, he says, I look back and realize that so much of my hopes and dreams and my identity was based on looking ahead to whom I would marry. And, and hoping that it was, it was my marriage that would make me feel secure and loved and would make me who I am. And I put more, more hope into my future marriage than I put into my walk with God. 
He goes on and says it's easy to anchor our hope and happiness in a wife or husband and to define our growth and our maturity and our worth and our marital status. And when we worship love and romance and sex and marriage and not God, we welcome pain and disappointment. See, and and this is the problem. Um, I think it was St. Augustine who said that the human soul is an idol factory. And what we naturally do is we look to other things to find our, our security, to find our meaning and purpose, to find our hope, instead of the God who created us. It's in God. That's where we find our security. That's where we find our acceptance. That's where we find our identity. But even when we've walked with God for many, many years, for decades, as some of you have, we still have this bent in us that turns us away from God and pursues these other things. And these other things that we're talking about are beautiful things. Marriage is a gift from God. Sex is a gift from God. Love and romance is a gift from God. They're good things. But it's normally good things that become the idols in our lives. When we take good gifts that God has given us and make them the ultimate thing. And so today I want us to think quite deeply about how easy it is to turn our hearts away from the one who does complete us to these other human relationships that in and of themselves are beautiful and wonderful things, but they can very easily become much too important in our hearts and lives. And I want to do that today by looking at a fascinating story in the Old Testament book of Genesis. So if you've got a Bible with you, either paper Bible or you've got your your phone there or or, or whatever with your um, app on it, I want you to come with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. I'm basing quite a bit of what I'm talking about today from um, a brilliant chapter in a book by Tim Keller. Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors, just retired as the pastor of a church in New York. And I think one of his best books is a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's on this idea of idolatry. And I'm basing what I'm saying today out of one of the chapters in Counterfeit Gods that he talks a lot about this. Genesis 29 is is part of the story of Jacob. Uh, Most of the book of Genesis, after the first 11 chapters that narrate the very beginning of everything, most of the rest of the book of Genesis follows four key characters from one family. Abraham, the patriarch, his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's son Joseph. And most of Genesis follows these four guys. So we're coming into the the third story uh, part of this, into the life of Jacob. Jacob was one of twin boys. He and his older brother Esau were born to Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And uh, right from the very beginning, there was tension in the relationship between these two twin boys. Esau was born first. And under the normal way that ancient Near Eastern culture worked, Esau, as the older boy, would be given a double blessing or a double portion. And so when Isaac and Rebekah died, the estate would not be divided in half, it would be divided into thirds. And, and Jacob would receive a third, and Esau, because he's the firstborn, would receive two thirds. And uh, Jacob didn't like this idea. And so through the, the story in Genesis, Jacob tricks his brother Esau of selling what's called his birthright. And then later on, he deceives his father Isaac, who'd gone blind, and pretends he's Esau so that Isaac blesses him and he receives the double blessing instead of his older brother. And he is a conniving sneak, 
is basically the best way to describe Jacob. He has God's blessing on him. God is going to actually later on in Genesis rename him Israel, and the whole nation of Israel will come from Jacob. So he becomes this massive figure in the story of faith, but he's actually a conniving little, you know, sneak. This guy. In fact, his name, Jacob, means deceiver. But because he's stolen the stuff from his brother Esau, Esau wants to kill him. And Esau decides, and, and he has overheard, that as soon as uh, his father Isaac dies, Esau is going to take his brother out. So Jacob has to flee for his life. And he flees back to the land in the east where his mother Rebekah has come from to her household and household of her brother, his uncle Laban. And that's where we pick up the story now in Genesis 29. He has come to this ancient land. He, ha- he has found his cousin, uh, Rachel, who's a shepherdess, and watered their flocks and finds out who she is and comes home to their, their home. And he's been there about a month working for his uncle Laban. And Laban asks him in chapter 29 of Genesis verse 15, um, you know, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And then we get into the main narrative I want us to look at today. Chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 29, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Most of the time in the Old Testament, we are not told a physical description of people. Most of the time when you're introduced to a character in the narratives of the Bible, they are more often than not described either in terms of their family lineage or their relationship with God. That's pretty much how people are described. This is the family they're from, or this poor person either walked with God or didn't walk with God. It's not often that they'll describe the physical features of someone. So when they do, it's an important part of the story. So King Saul, his height is really important because it makes him look more kingly, stuff like that. We're told about Rachel's outward appearance. So notice that in verse 17. Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So like she was like model material is the idea. And so what the text is emphasizing is that Rachel was stunning. She was a gorgeous woman. She had a figure to die for. She was beautiful to look at. She probably was one of those girls that had all the boys, local boys, sniffing around her most of her life. And then Jacob comes along and meets her and goes, ooh la la. That's a Hebrew expression. Ooh la la. (laughs) In contrast to that, there's her older sister, Leah. What the text tells us is Leah had weak eyes. Now there's debate over exactly, what does that mean? Like does that mean she should have gone to Specsavers and got something sorted? It's possible, because that's literally what it says, she had weak eyes. Probably though, I don't think it means that she, like me, needed glasses, because the contrast is to Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. So I think it means, personally, I think it means Leah was weak on the eyes kind of thing. In other words, her younger sister was gorgeous, but Leah was, hmm, you know, we'll leave it there. But you get the idea. That's, that's what the text is suggesting. And Jacob 
comes into this family home. He stayed with this family for a month. His uncle Laban and the family, he stayed there a month. And during that month, he gets to know this gorgeous woman. And he falls in love. The context is Uncle Laban says, what, what do you want your wages to be? Verse 18. I will work for you for seven years in order to get Rachel's hand in marriage. That is an over-the-top amount of time. I'm not saying that you ladies aren't worth it. Sorry, don't get the wrong impression. <laughs> but at this time, what, what um, people had to do is pay a bride price to the parents of a young woman if he wanted to marry her. But seven years is unprecedented. Like he has, he has paying, it's like you know, you've found that million dollar home and you want it so much you offer two mil. That's basically what he's done. He's, he's come into negotiation with a completely over-the-top offer to make sure no other buyers are in the market, essentially. And Uncle Laban rubs his hands with glee. Verse 19, Laban says, man, it's better that I give it to you than someone else. Stay here with me. Okay, question. Did Uncle Laban agree? Does he say, okay, you have a deal? No. Because while Jacob is a sneak, Uncle Laban is a double sneak. (laughs) So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days for him because of his love for her. Oh, yeah, it's it's exactly how you should feel. Like, this is so beautiful, you know? And then verse 21, so then at the end of the seven years, Jacob comes to Laban and says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Now something's going on in this narrative. First of all, we've been told in a rare case that this woman is incredibly beautiful. Immediately after we're told that she has a gorgeous figure and is beautiful to look at, we're then told that Jacob falls in love with her. So the hint here, I think, in the the way the narrative is written, is that Jacob has fallen in love because she is beautiful. So if you take the five criteria I suggested to singles last week, he's jumped straight to number five. Does she love God? Dunno. Is her character good? Not sure. But good night, have you seen her? That's enough for Jacob. And I think that's the way that the story is written. And then you get to verse 21, at the end of seven years, and he comes to his uncle, who will now become his father-in-law, and says something that in the original Hebrew text is actually really quite crass. The, The NIV softened it slightly for us. But he basically comes to his uncle and says, my seven years are up, give her to me, I want to have sex. I mean, how many of you have ever said that to your father-in-law? Guys, those of you who are married. I mean, you don't do that, do you? And what this is suggesting to us is is that Jacob, with all seriousness, has got one thing on his mind. See, what the story is telling us is that Jacob was looking to sex to fill the hole in his heart. Jacob is looking at this relationship with the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. And he wants her desperately because he has a hole in his heart 
He is missing something critical. And he thinks if he can get this gorgeous woman, like unlike anyone he's ever seen before, and if he can be her husband, and if he can have sex with her, suddenly, I mean, what's better than that? That's going to fix the hole in his heart. And there's this desperateness in the story in the way that Jacob is operating. Tim Keller in his book about this writes this, Jacob's life was empty. He had never had his father's love because his father loved his older brother more. He had lost his beloved mother's love and she would die before he got home. He had no sense of God's love and care. And then he beheld the most beautiful woman he had ever seen and he must have said to himself, man, if I had her, finally, something would be right in my miserable life. If I had her, it would fix things. And all the longings of his heart for meaning and affirmation were fixed on Rachel. See, this story is a sad reminder of what it looks like when we forget that what we most need is the one to complete us. Jacob's not interested in the God of his father and grandfather. He is after the one who he thinks will complete him. Unfortunately for Jacob, Uncle Laban is a bigger sneak than him. Verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a great marriage feast. And when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave a servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. And when morning came, literally it says in the Hebrew text, when morning came, behold, it was Leah. So, you know, no street lights or anything. So... Big wedding feast, end of the night, dark outside, dark marriage tent, heavily veiled woman. So Jacob just knows he's marrying Rachel. He goes in, they consummate the marriage, and then he wakes up this morning and rolls over, ready to give Rachel a beautiful morning breath kiss. And he's like, oh! <laughs> Behold, it's Leah! And he's like, good night! What's happened? It's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> So Jacob says to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? There's the irony. Jacob's name means deceiver. So the deceiver has been deceived. Laban replies, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Oh really? Why don't you explain that seven years ago? <laughs> Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob did. He finished his bridal week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter, other daughter Rachel to him to be his wife as well, and gave her a servant. And verse 30 says, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. This is a really tragic story. How did Leah feel? I mean, she'd grown up in a home where her younger sister was just everything that she wanted to be. She would have grown up in a home knowing that everyone would always come around and comment about how beautiful Rachel was. Isn't Rachel wonderful? Isn't she gorgeous? And Leah, who was just a an ordinary girl, 
just plain, grew up in the shadow of her sister. And her dad doesn't know how to marry her off. No suitors had come for Leah's hand, obviously. No men had come to the tent asking for her hand. It was all bees around the honeypot called Rachel. And so Leah had to be married off by trickery. What do you think that did to her soul? That her dad had to trick Jacob and veil Leah in the dead of night just to get her married off. How do you think she felt when Jacob did go, that next morning? And the disappointment echoed across his face. And then, at the end of their honeymoon, suddenly Rachel's now part of the family in this sick, polygamous arrangement. And it's interesting, actually, every time the Bible describes relationships, marriages that are polygamous, it never outrightly says this is wrong, but every single case, it's horrible. Just a mess. And Leah, having grown up feeling like she was competing with her sister her whole life, would now continue to compete with her sister for the rest of her life. And it is a competition, make no mistake. Keep reading, verse 31. When Yahweh, the Lord, saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because Yahweh has seen my misery. Look at this next line. Surely my husband will love me now. Isn't that sad? She has a son and calls him misery and says, God's seen my misery and given me this boy. Hopefully now my husband will love me. See, and while Jacob was looking for sex to fill the hole in his heart, Leah was looking for married love. She was desperately hoping that somehow, some way, she would find some meaning and some identity in her husband's love. Leah's story actually reminds me of another woman in the New Testament that Jesus met. She's a woman of Samaria, and in a beautiful story in John chapter 4, she comes out to a well that Jesus is sitting in. And uh, they begin a conversation, and midway through this conversation in John 4, Jesus said to her, asked her to bring her husband out, and she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five of them. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. And she's like, good night, you're a prophet or something. But there's something I think quite sad here. We don't know why she's had five husbands and is on to her sixth man. It's possible that maybe that all died. It's equally possible she'd been divorced. But there is almost a sense in this story of this woman trying to find love. And she's almost gone from one relationship to another relationship to the point that the sixth time, she's actually consented to live with the guy rather than actually marry him. Now, in our day, that's actually become normal. But in this day, in both Jewish and Samaritan culture, as far as I know, this was highly irregular. This was, this was sinful. But she was so desperate to find love in the arms of a man, she would even be willing to live with one without marrying them, just to find love. And the answer 
that she needs is what Jesus says to her slightly earlier in the story. Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will spring up to a water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, what Jesus is saying is, you've bounced from one relationship to another, you've gone from one man to another, one, one set of arms to another set of arms, desperately looking for love. What you need to understand is, I'm the source of that love. You don't need another man. You need a saviour and a messiah. Beautiful book I've read uh, this this last week is by an, uh, an, uh, a British lady. She's single, writing about singleness. And Andrea uh, Trevina says this, What was true of this woman in John 4 is true of us all. No man can ever be our saviour. Another brilliant line. Ladies, no man can ever be your saviour. Guys, no woman can ever be your saviour. No one can ever give us our ultimate sense of significance or identity or security or purpose and the contentment we long for. They're not perfect. And so often, this is the issue, you see. Well, sometimes, often, men are after sex because that's the way we tend to feel loved. Oftentimes, generalisation, but oftentimes, women are just after the security of that kind of relationship, just as Leah was. And what Andrea Trevina says is bang on. No man is saviour. No one, no human being can give us the significance and the security and the identity and the purpose and the contentment that we long for. That is God. And that was Leah. Jacob was looking for sex to fill the hole in his heart. Leah was looking for married love to fill the hole in her heart. And then there's Rachel. Come down now to chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, and Leah was, she became jealous of her sister. Possibly for the very first time in her life, she was jealous of what her plain Jane sister had. So she says to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then Rachel said, well, here is Bilhah, my servant, sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I can build a family through her. So this polygamous relationship now gets even worse as concubine servants are now introduced into the marital bed as well. Why? Because while Jacob's looking for sex and while Leah is looking to married love, Rachel is looking for children to fill the hole in her heart. See, every one of them, all three key characters in the story, are battling because there's this gap in life. There is something that is missing. And they look for, what is it that I need for me to feel fulfilled and content in life? And Jacob says, if only I could marry someone beautiful and just have sex, then I'd be happy. And Leah says, if only I could find meaning and contentment and identity in the arms of a husband, then I'd be content. And Rachel says, if only I could hold a baby in my arms, then I'd be content. And the answer in the story is, no, you wouldn't. Because that isn't what brings contentment. 
Because in the end, while all of those things are good things, sex and marriage and children are all good and beautiful blessings and gifts from God, none of them bring ultimate contentment. Because the story of the Bible is that it's God who we've been looking for. And it's God who completes us. Eventually, all three of these characters will find that. But in the context of this story, it's Leia who finds the truth. It's Leia, the plain Jane, who actually arrives at this understanding. Come back to chapter 29, because we jump some verses. We've seen that she had a son named Misery, Reuben, with this plaintive cry, maybe now my husband will love me. But then it goes on, verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a second son, she said, because Yahweh heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. She named him Simeon, which means God has heard. And again she conceived, verse 34, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will come, become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons, so she named him Levi. So three boys, One called misery, one called heard, one called attached, because she's desperate for her husband's love. Then it comes now, verse 35. She conceived again and gave birth to a fourth son. And look at what she says. Now I will praise Yahweh. Judah means praise. Finally, Leia gets it. When her fourth son is born, there's no talk of her husband. She doesn't talk about wanting to be loved. Now she says, I will praise Yahweh. And we don't know how, and we don't know why, but somewhere in this process, Leia cottons on to this understanding. If Yahweh loves me, If Yahweh hears me, if Yahweh has my heart, actually that's enough. I will praise Yahweh. She cottons on to this, that he's the one I'm looking for. That actually a husband's love is fickle. And there'll be times where he's wonderful and there'll be times where he's a jerk. But the God of Jacob will never fail me. The God of Jacob will never let me down. His love will always be there. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I can't help wondering actually whether this was the passage that Jesus had in mind when he says to the woman in Samaria, I will give you living water. The idea behind this is that what we do as human beings is that God is like this spring of fresh water that is continually bubbling up out of the ground. And in an arid culture like the ancient Near East was, that was incredibly valuable. God says, but it's, it's like... 
Here I am, the spring of fresh, beautiful, pure water, and yet you turn your back on me and go along a little bit, and you dig this cistern, this well, and it's broken, and it can't even hold water, and you look for the brackish, the dirty, little bit of dribble at the bottom of your own broken well instead of coming to me and finding your strength and what you're looking for, your sustenance. From me. And that's the story of these patriarchs. Leah and Rachel and Jacob. All of them digging their own wells when God was right there offering them living water. See, all of us have this craving deep inside to be loved. And so we go looking for the one trying to find us soulmate, this, this human being that will somehow complete us. And all the while we're wandering around, the spring is gurgling. And God is right there, saying actually the deepest need of your soul will only be ever met in me. Don't look to another human being. Don't look to a future marriage. Don't look to the husband or wife sitting right next to you. Or maybe off somewhere else today. Because only God can give us what we need. Only God meets the deepest needs of our souls. Only God completes us. So as we finish today, I want to say a few words to a few groups of us. All of us are going to be in two out of the four groups today that I want to talk to. So I'm going to talk to each of you twice, depending on where you land. First up, if you are single, can I please say this to you? Anticipate marriage with joy. Whether you are currently looking or whether you are not right now, um, if you are excited or wondering or looking to maybe marry, look forward to it. Anticipate it with joy. But please, find your worth in God's love. Hear what, what Marshall Segal said at the start of this message. That through my teenage years and my 20s, I put more hope on my future marriage than I did on God. That's the word for you if you're single. Oh, look, anticipate marriage. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God, but, but don't assume that just finding the right person to marry and getting married is going to suddenly make you feel loved. Because actually the love you're really looking for at the deepest part of your being is God's love. So find your worth now in Him. Pursue Him. Find your identity and value in Him. Marshall Segal again. Marriage will never satisfy or fulfill your deepest needs and cravings. The hole in our hearts will swallow and destroy any relationship if we look to another person to make us happy or whole. Because there's a hole in our hearts that only God can fill. Another author, Ben Stewart, that I've been reading, says, I realised I'd be looking to her, my future wife, to make me feel as though I was special. But he says, if I bring a God-sized need for love and acceptance to any girl, no matter how impressive she is, she can't meet a need like that. 
We actually need to find our identity and who we are and our significance and who we are and our value and that sense of being deeply loved. We need to find that in God, not in a future marriage partner. So if you're single, anticipate marriage, but find your real worth in him. Secondly, if you're married, I want to say, love your spouse, but love them out of God's love for you. Often when we are married, the sense of who we are comes from how our marriage is doing. And we feel good about ourselves when we feel loved, whatever our spouse needs to do for us to feel loved. But actually, the the correct way to live, biblically, is to actually find our love in God. And so that we become a conduit for God's love, that we find our love in Him, we find our acceptance in Him, we find our value in knowing that He loves us no matter what, and then we love our spouse out of His love. So it's like we're a cup and God fills us with His love and then that overflows into the life of our spouse. So rather than looking to Rochelle for my significance and my value and for a sense of being loved, what I meant to do is look to God for a sense of value and being loved. And then, and then out of that wealth, I've then got resources to love her and lay my life down for her. Tim Keller uh, writes, it is not just those without spouses who need to see God as our ultimate spouse, but those with spouses as well. If you marry someone expecting, to be, expecting them to be like a God, it's only inevitable that they will disappoint you. Uh, my friend Timon Benson, who's actually uh, preached here a few years ago, has written this in his book, While God calls many to be married, he does not call anyone to find their identity or security in anyone besides himself. I really like that. While he may call us, many of us, to be married, he doesn't call any single one of us to find our identity or security in anyone else except God. Thirdly then, if you don't know Jesus today, I want you to hear this. Nothing else in life will fill the God gap in your soul but God. We have a hole in our hearts. And that's what, this is what we're trying to fill. When we look to sex or, or married love or children when we look to adrenaline rushes or career or success or money, when we look to anything else in life as an idol, what we're trying to do is fill this hole in our hearts that only God can fill. It was Blaise Pascal, a Frenchman a couple of hundred years ago, wonderful believer who said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God through Jesus. Every single one of us have got a hole in our hearts. If you're married, you can't look to your spouse to fill that. If you're single, you can't look to a future marriage partner to fill that. You can't look to your career to fulfill that. You can't look to, to, to fun and pleasure to fill that. The God-shaped whole at the core of our being can only be filled by God and his love and grace. 
And if you've never embraced that and accepted the gift of love that God offers, the gift of grace and forgiveness through Jesus, can I urge you to do that? Because you'll never fill the hole in your heart without him. Finally, to those of you who already do know Jesus, I want you to hear this. You already have the greatest, most secure love you will ever experience. Whether you are married or not, doesn't matter. If you're a follower of Jesus, you already have the greatest love in the world. You are already embraced in the most secure embrace you will ever know. Don't look for a cheap imitation. Enjoy what you have in the human relationships of your life. But don't look elsewhere. Ben Stewart says, if you're in Christ, the most beautiful and powerful being in existence cherishes you. He knows your name. He sees you. He gave it all to make you his. And he will never, ever give up on you. There are times when every spouse fails. There are some tragic times where some spouses walk out the door and never come back. There are times when all of us desperately hurt each other. But there is one who never lets us go. And there is one who never fails us. John said, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. 2016, the US Navy launched its most specialised destroyer in its history. It was called the USS Michael Mansour. And it was named after a Navy SEAL. That's his picture up in the corner. He was killed in the line of duty in Iraq about a year or two before. He was in a three-man sniper team, all of them Navy SEALs. And they were out on patrol when they were uh, set upon by a group of, of uh, insurgents. And while they were in the little foxhole, these three guys, a grenade suddenly got pitched in and landed in the middle of the foxhole. In a split second, Michael Mansour did the unthinkable. He threw his body on top of the grenade so that his body absorbed the entire kill and saved the lives of his two colleagues. But it resulted in his instant death. In recognition of his bravery, the Navy, when they launched this incredible ship, christened it after him and asked his mum, Sally, to be the one to launch this boat. Michael Mansour, in a split second, gave his life for two other friends. Do you think those two men will ever have a day in their life where they wonder, did Michael Mansour really love us? Never. Because he paid the ultimate price. Jesus took the grenade for you. But he didn't do it in a split second, an instinctive, almost unthinking moment. He decided to do that before the creation of the world. He pre-planned 
So that when he made everything that is, he knew we would rebel. He knew you and I would wander. And he deliberately went through with a plan to take the grenade for you. And the irony is, you and I so often wonder, does he really love me? Does he really care? And the answer is absolutely. There is a love that never lets us go. There is a love that fills the deepest needs we have. But it is not found in any human relationship. It is only found in the arms of a God who stretched out his arms to die for us. And what we need to continually do, married or single, young or old, is keep coming back to that love. That's what I want us to do this morning as we finish up. I'm going to ask if the band would come on up. And they're going to lead us in a couple of uh, worship songs. And we have communion up the front here today. And this is just an opportunity for us to once again recenter ourselves on this amazing love of God. To remind ourselves as we take these emblems that Jesus gave us of bread and juice that remind us of his body and his blood that was given for us that we have already received, if we've trusted in Jesus, the ultimate love. And to look for other forms of love, to look for our deepest need to be met in any other relationship, is to miss out on what he has given and what he has done. We're going to sing, the first song we're going to sing is, is one that I've come to absolutely love. It's called Come to the Altar. And it's an invitational song. And here's what I want us to do. As we stand now and we sing, and as you're ready, you just come to take communion, I want you to come today to this table. I want you to come to the altar, as it were, with this in mind. That as you come, you are saying again today, God, you're the one I'm looking to. You're the one I'm looking for. You're the one who completes me. And it's in your love. Stand secure. So let's stand together and let's worship him. And let's come and celebrate a love that will never let us go. Thanks, guys.